Hello and welcome to another episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts, or more accurately, another special episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts, because I'm really pleased to say I have Ed Davey with me this time, one of the candidates for leader of the Liberal Democrats. Um, now, Ed, I guess a good place to start is maybe with the obvious question. You've been an MP with a slight gap since 1997. Um, and therefore been an MP through several leadership elections, but this is the one that you've decided to stand in. So why do you want to be leader and why this time? Well, I want to be leader because there's a massive opportunity for our party to win, win for liberalism, win to stop Brexit, win to be able to tackle the issues like climate change. And um, because of our amazing success in the last few months, we have a platform which we need a leader to seize that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, and I believe I'm that leader given my experience and we've talked about some of that but obviously I had five years as a minister negotiating in government, negotiating in the EU, the UN and I think I've got a lot of negotiating experience skills to bring to a job which will entail an awful lot of that political judgement, political skill. Um, you asked why I was, didn't stand for leadership before. I thought about it. Mm. Um, but for different reasons, different times, um, sometimes political, sometimes personal, I decided against it. Yeah. I thought very long and hard in 2017, um, and I almost had a well, I had a team up mm. and running, and was really thinking mm. of standing. The challenge was when I looked at uh, my family mm. um, once Vincent decided to run, because at one stage it looked like no one else yes, was going to run. indeed. And I was prepared to do it, but you know, slightly reluctantly. And when I looked at my party's, uh, my family's needs, uh, you know, my people know my son's disabled and. He was at a school in Alton, and we were having to, well, my wife was having to drive him there every day, mm. stay there. It was really uh, impacting her life, and John was not developing mm. in the way that we'd hoped. So we now home educate him yeah. with people coming in, and that's dramatically changed our life. Yeah. Uh, that's the biggest issue. My daughter hadn't started school. Mm. Uh, we needed to move house from the, the small place I bought when I was a bachelor, uh, and that didn't have, you know, let's get be frank and have a downstairs toilet and my mm. son needed a downstairs toilet mm. lots of different reasons yeah. which would have meant if I'd stood in 2017 um, it would have had a massive impact on my mm. family and sometimes you have to put your family first mm. in the two years since 2017 all those things have changed uh, you know Ellie's at school we've moved house and Emily's actually now a council on Kingston Council mm. and she stood for, for election six times before mm. and, and lost uh, four times in parliament to the GLA and I was uh, really committed to her realising some of mm. her Liberal Democrat dreams. Yeah. And uh, we met on a Lib Dem housing policy working mm. group in 2003. Yeah. And now she's housing portfolio for yeah. Kingston Council. So my life, my family life has changed dramatically. Yeah. I'm now ready. Yeah. Emily's got my, given me my, her full support. And um, I hope I can win. You, that reminds me of, I think, my worst experience ever when doing a Lib Dem training session, which I'm not sure I've mentioned to you, Emily, but it was after the two, must have been just after, I think, the 2005 general election, where Emily had stood and lost, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I came to Kingston to do a training session about lessons from some of the seats we lost, as to why we lost. and I thought, well, I'll pick seats outside London. So I'll be really safe, you know. There won't be anyone feeling too offended if I use some examples from outside London. And I realised, just as I was at, flipped to the slide that had lots of details about the seat that Emily had stood in, that she was sat in the middle of the front row next to you. She took it very well, yeah. I think, though. Well, I, I knew the criticism, and I, and I can tell you why it wasn't possible. 
it was mainly you were your criticism was there's not a lot of direct mail. Mm. Oh well, remember oh, somebody pays attention yeah, to my no, training I, sessions. I, I, I remember particularly that because I, I'd helped endorse it north, <laughs> and Emily got mm. within two thousand votes mm. and wasn't expected to do so well. And the reason we didn't get over the line actually was because the local party hadn't taken it seriously, mm. and they hadn't fundraised, and they hadn't got up the level of campaigning mm. team that you need to win a yeah. seat. And I was so frustrated for mm. her because she'd have been a brilliant MP and um, uh, it was not her fault. She'd worked tirelessly and sometimes the people locally hadn't, hadn't joined her. Yeah. And I, I guess that links back to what you're saying about what you want to do with the party and why you're standing this time. One way of thinking about that, which I think Tim Farron put very nicely when I asked him, what question, what was the best question to ask yeah, a leader candidate, given that Tim had been through this process as well, and he said it's ask them to summarise in one sentence what their mission is. To win for liberalism in the process to save us from Brexit and to tackle the climate emergency. That's not, not a bad mission, not a bad mission. If I can maybe pick, pick up particularly on the climate element first, because um, you've, you've used the phrase about decarbonising capitalism, yeah. and uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know when Stephen and I have discussed this phrase, I wasn't completely won over by it, not in terms of the spirit of it, but whether a slogan that involves a chemical compound and a sort of abstract <laughs> economic system has the, as you in fact yourself have said, has the right emotional punch about it to really work. Well, um, I'm not offering it to the party as our next campaign slogan, let's be yeah. really clear about this. What I hope it says to people mm. is that I am a radical mm. and I believe we need radical solutions mm. to tackle climate change. And you could call it carbon free capitalism, a green economy, mm. whatever you like, and we're going to campaign yeah. on it. Clearly, we would look at, do some market mm. research and work yeah. out what, what voters understood yeah. and what they wanted to hear from that. But um, I hope for party members mm. in this leadership election, it shows, A, that I know what I'm talking about through my experience as the Cabinet Minister mm. on Climate Change, having negotiated at Europe and the United mm. Nations, but it also shows that you know, I've been thinking since. And you know, this hasn't come out of the blue. I've been talking to people in the city. I've been, I went to see Mark mm. Carney, Governor of the mm. Bank of England. I read it quite deeply. I've employed someone, or she's volunteered to be frank, to help me think think these things through. And I'm really clear that this is the most important next step to tackle climate. We've got to take trillions, trillions of dollars, euros and pounds out of investing in carbon intensive industries, fossil fuels and so on, and get them to invest in green tech, renewables, etc. And the only way you're going to do that is if we ensure that markets are our servants, mm. not our masters, and markets, the cap capitalist mm. markets, are exposed, they have to be transparent, mandatory, mm. they have to follow accounting rules which are compliant mm. with getting Britain to net carbon zero, which are compliant with the Paris Climate Treaty. It's pretty, cool, pretty radical stuff. I know how it can be done, and because I'm so passionate about mm. climate change, uh, it would be a top priority mm. for me. And I guess one of the unfortunate, perhaps, elements about elections, both internal and public elections, is they are about choice. You know, so, you know, you can maybe like both candidates or like two different parties, but you then have to plump, unless you've got some form of you know, uh, alternative or STV, you have to plump for one of them. Um, so I think a lot of what you've just said probably would be quite similar to what people might hear if, say, Ed Miliband was giving a speech on the environment. So what would a sort of an Ed Davey Liberal Democrat Party have to say to really say well actually this is why you need to vote for us and not for that other lot this is why we're different on the environment uh, speaking on the environment mm -hmm. 
well, I believe, A, we've got a much better track, track record mm. than any political party. I mean, let's remember, thanks to Liberal Democrats, mm. we nearly quadrupled Britain's renewable yeah. power. We, we, the Liberal Democrats, made Britain the world leader in offshore wind. So we've got a track record yeah. uh, better than anyone. Of course, going forward, I think our plan on, on decarbonising capitalism, whatever name, uh, marketing name yeah. we choose, um, is much more radical than anything the Labour's uh, put forward. I don't know if people have read the speech by John McDonald mm. uh, that he made in the city on this very issue mm. yesterday. Uh, it was not convincing. Mm. It was very statist. Mm. He thinks, basically, the government should tell everybody what to do. Mm. In my experience, that ain't going to work. Mm. You have to create the framework, the rules, the regulations, the taxes, and if you do that, you have far bigger impact, far more quickly. So that's at a policy level, not a marketing level, I accept that. Um, but I think better track record, better policies. And I don't think a Labour government is actually very credible on this issue. It's got a, Labour has traditionally had a poor track record. And if it really wants to nationalise everything that moves, which seems to be really what John McDonnell wants to do, it'll waste a huge amount of money and a huge amount of time and achieves nothing for climate change. And you've talked a lot about both the Liberal Democrat track record and your track record as well. Um, and I'll come on in a moment to more general issues about what attitude we should take towards the party's time in coalition, because I think there's been at least a little bit of a difference of tone between you and Joe Swinson on that, which would be mm -hmm. helpful to unpack a little for, for members thinking about who to vote for. But just maybe just specifically on the environment, there are obviously two particular areas of controversy around fracking and around nuclear power in terms of yep. what you supported when you were in government and what some Liberal Democrat members wished we were doing. So could you just briefly outline, let's take each in turn, on fracking, what's your, what's your position? What's, what do you think is the best policy for the government on fracking? Well, I now very clearly support a ban on fracking, but I didn't in government, mm. so let me explain my journey. Mm. Yep. First of all, as Secretary of State of Energy and Climate Change, I inherited, a, from, from Chris Hewn as Liberal Democrat, a policy that was pro-fracking. Mm. Okay, so I inherited a policy, it was a coalition policy, and I had to manage that policy. I couldn't simply just tear it up, it would have caused a dramatic uh, crash and would have prevented me doing the things I wanted to do for renewable power. So what did I do? I persuaded the Tory that I was terribly sympathetic to their cause, but I regulated it extraordinarily hard. And I passed a number of regulations which were based on environment, based on what I call the precautionary principle, to make sure we weren't doing damage, and therefore justifying them by the precautionary principle, they were very, very tough. The one that's actually stopped the fracking industry going anywhere is the regulation I passed on seismicity. This is preventing earth tremors through fracking. And because the regulation I passed, the fracking industry hasn't got off the ground. So if you look, want to have someone who's actually uh, fought the fight against fracking, you're looking at the person or you're listening to them uh, yeah. as your, your audience. And I've moved to be more, even more negative about uh, fracking for two reasons. First of all, the renewable uh, energy policies would be put in place have been even more successful than I'd imagined. So the cost of offshore wind has come down dramatically. When I was first pump priming it, I was having to pay, the consumers are paying, £140 per unit of uh, uh, energy. We've now got the price to below 60 in about four years. That is a transformation of Britain's ele electricity system, which means we don't need to have so much gas. So we need to frack. 
the second piece of information is from my favourite environment NGO, mm. Carbon Tracker Initiative. Yeah. And Carbon Tracker have, from 2016, produced a whole set of analyses which show that the gas, coal and oil that we've already discovered in the world, if we consumed it all, would blow our carbon budget to keep the world safe mm. uh, four times over. So that very compelling evidence shows me that we don't need to frack and we shouldn't frack. And that journey I've been on was, by the way, an evidence-based journey and also part of a journey which has prevented the fracking industry getting off the ground. Um, and then nuclear power. Um, and I guess some of that journey, or some of that story is probably slightly similar to the fracking story. But obviously yeah. for some environmental campaigners that might very much the minority but for some there is an argument that actually nuclear power is partly the answer to some of these issues around fossil fuels yeah. which seem to be the coalition's message at least between 2010 and 15 well, so what what's your view on nuclear power now well my nuclear position on nuclear power before during and after mm. coalition was it's an issue about cost i don't think one should be against a technology because it's a technology mm that seems to be not an evidence-based liberal approach. Um, and I came in after Chris Hume with a coalition policy pro-nuclear. Yeah. And at the time, we were looking at getting nuclear power for about £90 per unit mm. of energy, when we were looking at offshore wind at £140. Mm. And I was trying to persuade the Tories to allow me to sign at £140 to pump prime mm. the renewable sector. And they were saying, well, you're going to have to do nuclear. Mm. Um, and because it was a low-carbon uh, technology, because, as you rightly say, a lot of environmentalists are actually pro-nuclear as well because of climate change, because it's low-carbon, I was willing to go along with that. But I, and indeed Chris, did two things which I think are fundamental and often get forgotten. We said nuclear must pay its true costs. That meant ensuring that the price had the cost of nuclear decommissioning and managing the nuclear waste in the price never been done before in history in the UK or anywhere in the world but we did it and that exposed the high cost of nuclear and kept future nuclear projects mean and clean because they have to uh, go through that transparency as well. The second thing I did which I fear the government is not continuing with for any future nuclear power plants which I think is why we should reject nuclear for the future, one of the reasons I think we should reject nuclear for the future is I transferred the risk from the consumer and the taxpayer to the developer. So EDF had to price in what happened if the Hinkley Point C never gets mm. built or is over time when it's yeah. built. And so if Hinkley Point C is delayed, we won't have to pay any more money. So I protected the taxpayer from the historical over costings yeah. of, of nuclear. So Hinkley Point C was decided two years into the Tory government, the final decision wasn't taken by me, but I'd structured the mm. contract to make sure nuclear had to pay its full cost. Yes. Um, now I look back, I don't actually regret that decision, because at that time, that was what unlocked mm. the renewable yeah. power revolution, which I drove and drove most mm. effectively. And I note there's lots of onshore wind, offshore, mm. offshore wind, solar farms that are being built and are operating. Hinkley Point C hasn't yet yeah. been built or completed. Plus, I think the analysis of people now is that we don't need nuclear. We don't need nuclear because we were so successful in getting low carbon renewable energy costs down and because, something I cannot take credit for, the storage revolution to store power when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow 
has taken off leaps and bounds. Yes. And if you have cheap renewable power <coughs> and cheap uh, safe storage, you no longer need nuclear. So I think through the policies that I developed on renewables and the approach I took on nuclear, I've actually made the case yeah. for not having nuclear in the future. And, and I guess there's, there's maybe a link here to a bigger question about our time in coalition, because I think what you've said actually reminds me rather of when during coalition I was on the Federal Policy Committee and particular controversy, a government minister, a Liberal Democrat minister, came to the committee to explain what was going on. And their essential explanation was, yes, the headline policy is... The headline news is the government is doing something that Liberal Democrats don't like, but it's all okay because all of the details are such that it's never really going to work. So be reassured, the outcome is going to be one mm. that we can comfortable with. And I remember thinking then, and I asked them, you know, the question at the time, that that's great, but we're a political party. Now, how if the details are great, but the headlines are not, that politically can can have a cost. So, and I, I, I think that's probably a pattern that I've heard most, if not all, Liberal Democrats former ministers who have talked about their time in government have in some way, I think, replicated that sense of, yes, we, there were these details we got right, but obviously 2015 general election result, not the result we wanted. So what lesson do you draw um, from our time in coalition? And, for example, do you think we should apologise for particular things we did in coalition? Well, Mark, um, I basically agree with your, um, your premise that um, we got a lot of the policies right, mm. but we didn't get the credit mm. for them. And I think throughout the coalition, we played the politics and the PR very badly. Um, we managed to get the blame for all the things that went wrong and the choice for the credit for all the things that went right. There were significant moments where we got the PR wrong. We all think of the Rose Garden. We all think of the pat on the back that Nick gave to George Osborne after the first uh, budget and so on and so forth. And um, we need to really learn those lessons and specifically on the policy agenda, I think I actually managed to steer a course when I was Secretary of State because we were getting a lot of credit for the renewable revolution, which was controversial. I was having, for example, weekly fights with Eric Pickles yeah. about planning and onshore wind. And I was in the news, if you check the mm. cuts, I was in the news battling for renewables. Yeah. And I deliberately went out and got it in the news and, uh, that I was fighting Eric yeah. Pickles and fighting others because I thought that was the right way to get over the message that we were battling yeah. the government. Now, um, of course, there were issues around fracking and, and nuclear, but again, if you look at the press cuts, the way I tackled it was by saying, you know, some Tories, and I forget the exact quote, wanted to frack every croquet lawn yeah. in England, and I called them the frack baby frackers, and I was basically painting them as the cheerleader for fracking, and me as yeah. the cautious person, yeah. and the one questioning it and one slowing it down. And the reason I emphasise that is that I think on that bit of the gender, um, I like to think I got the PR right, yeah. because I was showing battling, I was showing the tensions yeah. that were there, and I was letting them come into the media. And I don't, didn't think we did that enough. Um, Nick was amazing on so many levels. I think his judgment that we didn't get into the public domain the battles that we won yeah. and where we stopped the Tories. I think his judgment sometimes went awry on that yeah. and we didn't get over the fact that we had stopped the Tories doing some appalling things, which of course we did. And but substantively, are, so there's the communication side yeah. where you've talked about how you think we should have done things differently or at least with hindsight the lessons we can learn. 
um, on policy, um, so without you know wanting to get too much into a forensic sentence by sentence comparison, say of what you and Joe Swinson have said, but obviously this election in, in a way is a choice. Joe has been has said things like that she thinks the bedroom tax was wrong. Are there any policies like that that you feel it's appropriate to apologise for, or do you want to not get into that apology territory at all? Well, I think first of all. I'm not going to apologise for the Liberal Democrats going into coalition as the key step. The country was in a total mess, and we did actually put the country before party. I mean, during those five days of negotiations, I was saying to colleagues, this is going to hurt us terribly, but we've got to do it. And so it was, you know, very much consciously that we were doing that. Uh, and I don't think we should ever apologise for doing the right thing for our country. Moreover, I do think we achieved a huge mm. amount, 70% of our manifesto, achieving more for liberal values and policies than any government for over 100 years, and don't want to apologise for that. Mm. Did we make mistakes? Of course we did, both on PR and policies. But if you then apologise for the whole government mm. because of, of a few mistakes, even though some of them were quite damaging for us, I, I, I think you're betraying your legacy mm. and your role, and you're not allowing history to show you, show us for mm. the brave, courageous, effective uh, party we were in government. Um, but we know we made mistakes. Tuition fees, mm. of course. I mean, you know, we know that Nick apologised mm. for that. Does every single leader for the next 100 years have to apologise for that? I don't think that's a sensible way. It's been done. Yeah. Let's move on. Um, there were policies I was extraordinarily uncomfortable with. Let me tell you two, one, mm. two policies. One was on um, benefits. Mm and some of the benefit changes that we made and I and a few other ministers stopped some benefit changes going through. There was a proposal from the Tories that we cut housing benefit by 10% for people who were unemployed for 12 months. Uh, and Nick wanted to put that into the welfare reform bill at second reading and then get it out in the Lords. And I said, and a few other ministers said, we will just not vote for that at uh, second reading. That is kicking people when they are down and we will not do that and so uh, you know we actually did stop some stuff in government there were some other benefit reforms Joe talks about the second uh, the, the, the bedroom tax I agree with her that you know were really difficult um, but there was a justification Nick and others gave for that in the coalition the other one that I actually had gave me the worst uh, uh, concerns about was on immigration and it was the, and our policy of course is to reject this, but in coalition the Tories were determined to push it through. And that was about family reunion. Mm. If you wanted to bring your husband or wife or child to this country to get a visa, previously you didn't have a, you just had to prove that they could, that if they were an adult, that they could get a job or had got a job lined up. Um, that sort of test became far more severe under the coalition. I voted against it in the Cabinet Committee. We had to think whether we were going to uh, make that a line in the sand, and collectively we decided not to. That, Mark, is the sort of difficult decisions you have to make in, in, in coalition, like in any agreement with any, in any family, any company, any party, and sometimes you have to, for the greater good of what you're achieving, be prepared to make a compromise which is painful. And we did make painful compromises. And so you've, you've talked a little bit about 
what we can learn to some extent with the advantage of hindsight and actually I think hindsight is often underrated as a virtue it's good to be able to look back and learn from what you've done um, I'm certainly doing that today unfortunately one of the, the fallouts from that was our big loss of seats in the 2015 election and your unwelcome you know uh Two My year enf- enforced, enforced sabbatical. sabbatical. What did you? What have you learned from that sabbatical? Because because it's quite unusual in that sense to be at the front run rank of politics to have an enforced sabbatical and then be straight back in. So what? what how do you think you're different as an MP or in your approach to running for leader because of those two years? Well, during those two years, several things happened. Mm. Obviously, I spent a bit more time with my family, mm. which is great. Um, on balance were they glad about that or? Uh, well I think my wife was uh, I like to think she was um, I also set up a little business mm. called Energy Destinations did a, a number of uh, pieces of work primarily in the renewable mm. sector was chair of a community energy company in renewables called Mongoose yeah. um, advised uh, an energy company called Angie which was one of the big old-fashioned energy companies which was taking the green agenda seriously and was moving to to low carbon sending off coal and gas and so on and I was very keen to to help that transition which I think is very important for climate so those sorts of things I really enjoyed them and um, uh, and that those lessons of that you know working in coffee shops on my laptop mm. <laughs> which I did quite a lot of um, taught me a lot about self-employment taught me a lot about the energy industry more deeply um, so I think I bring that experience to bear, particularly on the climate change uh, debate. I think in terms of politics, um, locally I made it my business to make sure that the party didn't just fold. Mm. And I think in one or two of the areas that we've lost, um, the leadership of people who've lost hasn't been as strong as it needed mm. to be. I, for example, made it clear that the party HQ should not be sold mm. and although we had an outstanding mortgage I went uh, I went this out is the constituency HQ the, the yeah. constituency HQ not the, not yeah. the national yeah. HQ uh, people may have views on that as well yeah, yeah. but we're talking about the but Kingston office the Kingston yeah. office um, and uh, we had an outstanding mortgage on that and I went and raised mm. money to make sure we could pay yeah. that mortgage and so we could keep that office and I worked with local uh, campaigners to try to sort of do well in elections mm. and uh, to ensure we had a campaign team still putting out leaflets indeed I be, almost became the ca- constituency mm. organiser for about a year yeah. writing the leaflets and making sure they were paid for so um, I think it's important that um, if you are committed to the party and you've been fortunate to have a position if you lose mm. that position and the local party is uh, you know, affected by mm. that because you're not there your staff mm. aren't there your ability to raise money isn't there you actually try to fill that vacuum mm. And I like to think I did in Kingston, and that was part of the reason why we didn't just win the seat back in 2017, but we won the council Mm. back in 2018 with a record majority. Mm. Um, So it's very hard to predict what's going to happen next in British politics. Very hard indeed. (laughs) I thought you were going to tell me, Mark. Well, yeah. We could edit in various scenarios (laughs) here and then look look amazingly thoughtful and accurate in a few years' time. But I think one thing that is almost certain is the party system, the old two-party system, is fraying at the edges. And we've Absolutely. seen that with Chuck Ramuna's decision to join the Liberal Democrats, for example. What's your, what's your general attitude towards uh, trying to both win more support but also win over people from other parties? Because, again, there's sort of almost two complementary but at heart also slightly different tapes. One is a desire to win people over to the Liberal Democrats to say, well, look, if you agree with us a bit, come and join us. And the other is to emphasise more 
finding ways of other ways of working with people who maybe half agree with us? Well, first of all, the more successful mm. the Liberal Democrats mm. are, the more likely it is that people will join us. When we're at 7 or 8% mm. in the opinion polls, people don't think, oh, I'm going to give up mm. my career in this party mm. and go and join that party yeah. that's not doing very well. Mm. So for us to mm. persuade people to join us, it is a it's a necessary requirement that we're doing well. Mm. So if you want to uh, break the, the mould of British politics, first of all, Liberal Democrats must build on the success that we've achieved and I believe I know how to do that. I'm a campaigner at heart. You know, I won my seat in 97 without it being a target seat mm. and I'm, I'm committed to campaigning so we, we go forward big time. However, in being successful that uh, as a party, that's not uh, sufficient. You need to be uh, non-tribal and I think Liberal Democrats by nature are the least tribal of any political party. And you need to talk to uh, uh, MPs and other parties and, and members and other parties in a way which helps them make that difficult decision. So, what's our target audience? Pro-EU Liberal Tories, pro-EU Social Democrat Liberal Labour, they all exist in large numbers. And if you start thinking about if you're one of those Tory MPs or Labour MPs or another MP from another party, your concerns are going to be, will you A, be comfortable in this new party? And I think we can very much show that they would be. The way that Chuck has been embraced, and he's, he's actually loving being a Liberal Democrat MP, by the way. He, 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 he finds it uh, very comfortable. How many, has anyone sold him his first raffle ticket yet? <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> it's like... No, well, I, I haven't, but yeah. it's a good idea. Yeah. Um, not, not a proper Lib Dem, but he's bought a raffle <laughs> ticket. Um, so they've got to feel comfortable. But the other thing is, let's be brutally honest and frank, they've got to feel they can win their mm. seat, or potentially mm. another seat somewhere else, because yeah. they presumably want to stay in frontline politics. Mm. And that's more tricky. Uh, and one of the reasons why people don't leave their tribe is, is partly because of the social ties yeah. and their family ties and their friends ties and that, that milieu that they've developed over years. But it's also, well, if I leave the Tory party or leave the Labour party for the Liberal Democrats, I won't win my seat back yeah. again. And we have to be able to show to them that they could retain mm. their seat, A, because we're doing so mm. well, and B, because we will put in that support, mm. we're raising the mm. money, we, the local party will mm. welcome them and, and, and fight, fight with them. But there's, there's an, a sort of a, a, another possible tack, isn't there, which is to say, um, as we've done a little bit with the Greens in different places, that we're open to doing some electoral deals. So it might be that, for example, an MP might be thinking, well, I'm not going to go all, as far as join the Lib Dems, but maybe I will leave my own party and seek to strike an electoral deal. Um, or it might be, as we've seen in various places around the country, a party like the Greens might think, well, actually, maybe at local level or parliamentary level or a mix of both, there's scope here for some sort of deal. What's, what's, your, what's okay. your attitude towards those sort of electoral pacts? Well, there are two types of deals, mm. and we should remember our history. Mm. The first type of deal is an informal one that's mm. not stated publicly, mm. it's not even agreed publicly. And I take people back to the 97 election mm. and the 2001 election, and it was called tactical voting. Go and read the general election studies of Butler mm. and Kavanaugh and all the rest of them. They showed that tactical mm. voting in 97 and 2001 mm. was extraordinarily mm. powerful in keeping the Conservatives out of government and getting them mm. less members of Parliament and worked brilliantly. And I say this personally because mm. I wouldn't have been elected yeah. without tactical voting by a majority of 56 votes, and I wouldn't have increased that majority to 15,676 in 2001 without even more mm. tactical voting. Yeah. So 
I'm a huge believer in tactical voting, and I can see that absolutely working, and I'd be completely in favour of that with the websites, yeah. the social media, and, and my independent and, sources. And what about the step further that, say, well, is happening in Oxford West with Leila Moran, with the Greens not standing, or indeed in Twickenham, you yeah. know, where, where there have been more formal arrangements as well? Well, um, I'm not again, <coughs> again that, um, but I, th- I would first advise let's get the tactical voting in place, because that's a lot easier, and people can work with that very hard. But what about electoral packs? Let me say two things on this. First of all, there are one or two MPs who we have stood uh, aside for before. I think of Caroline Lucas mm. in Brighton Pavilion, and we should stand aside again. Uh, there are others that we should promote an independent candidate for to try to beat yeah. them. I'm thinking of Boris Johnson in Uxbridge. Mm. So those ones are, I think, fairly easy. Going further than that is difficult. Um, and I've been lukewarm to that simply because the Greens have been extraordinarily negative towards us. The SNP wouldn't uh, wouldn't consider it, and Labour and Tories, if they MPs did that, they'd probably be deselected mm. immediately. So you might be left with Plaid, mm. and maybe we could talk with the Welsh Liberal Democrats about whether mm. we could do something with Plaid. So you know, often people like to think this is terribly easy mm. to do. Mm. It's actually yeah. not. If you've been around as long as I have, you know the difficulties. However. I have said, mm. and I'm very happy to repeat today, that if we're facing a leave alliance mm. where we have the appalling image of those appalling politicians, mm. Johnson and Farage, shaking hands and doing a Brexit cons- uh, Conservative Party leave alliance, formally or informally, frankly, then we have to go the extra mile. And I think we could take the party with us, and I think we could put a lot of pressure on the Greens and others and potentially even some Labour and Tory MPs, potentially, to go that extra mile. So if there's, let's say, a general election in the autumn where it's triggered by Brexit, so it is a single-issue election on Europe in the way that 2017 didn't turn out to be a single-issue election, in that situation you can imagine some sort of uh, fairly extensive set of deals to have one pro-Remain candidate in a constituency? Well, um, I could consider it. I wouldn't reject it out of hand... But I think we should not be naive, we shouldn't be unrealistic, we should know how difficult it is to achieve that. And to even get anywhere near that, you'd have to take local parties with you. We are a democratic party, and local parties in our constitution, the way we uh, operate, are fundamental to those sorts of choices. And I'm not the sort, I wouldn't be the sort of leader to sort of impose and dictate. You have to take people uh, with you. In, in truth, I think the value of uh, that type of alliance mm. is a lot smaller than people mm. actually believe. If you look at, say it was with the Greens mm. and Plyde, the number of seats mm. that would fall into Remain hands through that alliance would be relatively mm. small. It's really whether or not you do any deals with Labour or Tory mm. MPs. The reality is they wouldn't want to do them because they would then be taken off as the candidate and so, and I'm being really explicit about this, the strategic choice or tactical choice whatever you like, would be would we stand down unilaterally to protect a pro-Remain Labour or a pro-Remain Tory MP? That would be actually the decision I think it's really hard, the party would have to debate it Um, uh, I would not rejected, but I again I can't see it being a realistic option in other than a handful of seats. Yeah.
Okay, one final question then, which you may have slightly answered actually with your previous question, but um, it's almost traditional in a way that a leader of any political party ends up at some point in a bit of bit of a fight with the activists in their own party. Never, um, never. So seen that. I'm just wondering, is there any particular issue where you are expecting? You think, well, this is what I want to do, and maybe if I win this leadership election, this will give me the mandate to do it. But where you're thinking this is likely to be controversial with most or at least many people in the party. Well, a lot of those fights in the past have been about internal party matters, to be honest. I think on policy and philosophy, it's actually relatively easy to keep the party together. And uh, I'm very much in the centre of the party. I don't see that as an issue. But I do want to reform the party. Um, I think the federal board is too large. Um, I've been on a lot of boards uh, of charities, of uh, companies, not-for-profits, of um, a departmental board, when I was Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change. I've never been on a board with more than 12, maybe 15 members. The federal board has 43. Um, yeah, I, I, exactly, and even when attendance is poor yeah. at a meeting, there are well and, more than a dozen I, in And the I, I would seriously question mm. whether that's a good governance, and I'm sure I would be opposed by lots of people, but I would seriously question whether that is a central mm. way of governing mm. our party. I would go further if you want me to be mm. ca- cause lots more fights and lose a lot more votes. <laughs> uh, it shows how frank and open I'm being. I would want to open the policy process up. Yep. I think the policy process is too limited to conferences mm. and to a relatively small number of people, mm. great though they are. And I want to make sure the wider membership, mm. people who just joined the party, people who have been in the party a long time mm. but never able to go to conference, can have a say mm. in policy development far more. Mm. And I think the technology, the sort of participatory platforms that are existing in other walks of life in other countries are there for the taking. And I would want to be able to harness all the talent and ideas, for, not just for policy, but for campaigns that I know is okay. out there. Does that mean, for example, moving away from the idea that, for example, on policy, that that's decided by votes from people who are physically present in conference? In my do, I mean, I would want to trial stuff mm. and pilot stuff. I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to sort of, I, I haven't got this big plan, which is, you know, day one, here it is, I can tell you about this. I haven't got that. What I have got is a number of ideas that I'd want to talk to the party, yeah. say, let's trial this and see what yeah. works. Because uh, it's not just about voting, it's about coming up with the ideas and being able to see those ideas yeah. debated properly. Um, and then taken seriously by the party. Yeah. Brilliant, thank you. I think on that, as on several of the other questions, it's very clear what the general direction of travel would be and what your instincts would be, even if we'll have to see how events unfold, exactly what that will always mean precisely in practice. But I think that's given people a really good flavour of what an Ed Davey leadership might be like. So thank you very much for your time today, Ed. Thanks for the opportunity. There we have it now, both the interviews with Ed Davey and Joe Swinson safely recorded and broadcast. If you didn't catch the Joe Swinson interview, it will still be available in the Nevermind the Bar Charts podcast feed, or if you want a link to the previous blog post on my website with the interview with Joe embedded in it, if you go and find us on social media, either at Bar Chart Podcast on Twitter or Nevermind the Bar Charts Podcast on Facebook, you'll be able to find the link to the Joe Swinson interview very easily there. Stephen and I will be back in our normal format in a few days' time 
recording a show where we discuss what we made of the interviews with Ed and Joe. Stephen has said that he's an undecided voter, so who knows, you may discover what impact the two interviews have made on his voting decisions. Um, you can also, in the meantime, please do let us know through those social media channels what you made of the interviews, and if there's any particular points that struck you about them, we'll be reading all the listener feedback as usual before we record the next episode. And in the meantime, thank you once again very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.